Well, good morning, North Wake. Please uh, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. As we continue our Lenten series on the cruciformed or the cross-shaped life. What does it mean to live like Jesus? And here we're not, we're not asking the question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? But I call it HDJL, it's harder to say. How did Jesus live? So we want to look at Jesus' life. We want to reflect on our life. You know, Paul told us to have the mind of Christ. He said, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the topic for this morning is contentment. I looked up the definition, just a generic definition. It's a state of having accepted one's situation. So the verse we're going to look at this morning is Philippians 4.13. You probably know it. I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. Now, at this point, you might, be, you might be thinking, preacher, great topic, contentment, wrong verse. Contentment and Philippians 4.13, do they really go together? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because I'm sure that you've seen this verse attached to various famous sports athletes, probably most famously Tim Tebow who put the verse reference in the black strips under his eyes and was featured on a Sports Illustrated cover, July 27, 2009. Or Steph Curry's signature shoes with Under Armour that has a 413 uh, at the bottom of the tongue and on the heel it states, I can do all things. But what is Philippians 4.13 really about? What does the verse mean in context? You know, context is important. Have you ever bought a house? What's the three most important things when you buy a house, they tell you? Location, location, location. What are the three most important rules of interpreting the Bible? Well, it's location, 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 right? Context. Where is that verse located? So context, context, context means location, location, location. You know, if someone says, I love trees, what does that mean? You don't, you don't really know, do you, unless you know the context of what's being, how it's being said. If, is it a nature lover? Is it a logger? Is it a cabinet maker? You see, that statement changes depending on who says it, the context of which it's spoken. Here are some examples, and I'm not recommending or encouraging these. This is not, uh, you know, don't tweet these out. Uh, But there are ways that you could take the Bible out of context. So, here's some examples. Would Revelation 11.10 make a great Christmas text? It says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send send gifts to one another. I mean, that's the best Christmas text that you've never seen on a Hallmark card. Why not? Because of the context. It's talking about the world celebrating after they killed two of God's prophets. See, you can't use that. 
Or wouldn't Psalm 79.1 make a great missions text? It says, oh God, the, the nations have come into your inheritance. Well, the answer is no because of the context. The, the verse goes on to say, they have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They're not coming into God's salvation. They're coming into the holy land to destroy it. Context. And one of my favorite ones, I, I really think that some church should probably do this at some point, probably not us though. But wouldn't 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one be great above the nursery door? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Come on, you've been there. You've been there. Well, what's the context of Philippians 4.13? Paul's in prison. Right? He's in prison probably in Rome. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. He says in, in Philippians 1.13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He was put in prison for preaching the gospel. And he recognizes that death may be the outcome of his imprisonment. He says in chapter one, verse 20, he says, I hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He talks about being poured out like a drink offering. And so death is a real possibility. And Paul sitting there in prison. Spurgeon wrote, Paul understood well the devices which Nero had invented to put torment upon Christians. He had heard in a cell, no doubt, of those who were smeared with pitch and set on fire in Nero's gardens to light his festivities. Though he had heard of Nero's racks and chains and hot pincers, yet Paul felt persuaded that rack and pincers and boiling pitch would not be strong enough to break his faith. Death may be the outcome, but he's also hopeful he will be released from prison. And so he writes this letter to the church at Philippi almost 30 years after becoming a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. And so it's in this context that we find Philippians 4.13. So I want to share with you this morning what I think this verse means and how it can teach us about contentment. And so we're gonna look at the meaning of contentment, the means of contentment, and the message of contentment. Let's pray together. And so Lord, we, we do pray that you would give us the mind of Christ. Lord, you, you, you tell us not to worry, but to come to you in prayer, that your peace would give us uh, would be present with us and it would pass all understanding and that you promise to supply all of our needs according to your riches in Christ Jesus. And so Lord, speak to us now we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So first, what is the meaning of contentment? What is the meaning of when Paul says in Philippians 4.13 that I can do all things? You know, oftentimes this verse I think at least, is taken out of context to mean that Christians, when they're empowered by God, that there is nothing beyond our ability, that there is nothing beyond our capability. If we really, if we really believe it, then we can do all things. But I propose that when Paul says that he can do all things, what, he, what he's saying in the context is this, 
that I can be content in any situation I'm in. That's what it means. So, so what does Paul mean when he says he can do all things? Well, the, the, interestingly, the verb here that's translated do, what it means is to be powerful, to be able, to prevail. You know, it's used 27 other times in the New Testament. It's never translated as do anywhere else. For example, let me just give you a couple places where this verb is found. Acts, Acts 19.16 talks about a demon-possessed man, how he prevailed over the seven sons of Sceva. That's the same verb. A few verses later it says, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. And in Revelation 12.8, it says that the dragon could not prevail over Michael and his angels. And so when Paul, when he says that he can do all things, he's talking about how he can prevail or have the victory over something. And what does he mean when he says that he can do all things? Again, we must read the verse in the context. Paul is talking about contentment. He says that in any circumstance, I've learned how, how to live con with contentment. And so the key is the context. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And here's a key phrase, in any and every circumstance. If you take notes in your Bible, highlight that, underline it. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In any and every circumstance, and then the next words, the next verse, I can do all things. In other words, no matter what circumstance I'm in, I can have the victory. I can be content in that circumstance. One commentator, he put it this way, says, those translations which give the impression that Paul meant that he can do anything and that nothing was beyond his powers are misleading to the point of being false. All things as used here can only refer to all those situations, both good and bad, that have, been just, that have just been described. So Paul's victory, when he says I can do all things, he's saying I can have the victory and that victory means contentment. I can be content in any circumstance. But how? What is the means by which Paul could do this? How is he able to do this? Well, he tells us. It's through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul's contentment did not come from his own strength. You know what his secret was? His secret was that he didn't do it. Christ did it through him. And therefore, it's a secret that's open to all believers. You see, the, in the original text, it, it's not simply that it's through Christ, but it's in Christ. It's through our union with Christ. In other words, it's not just a matter of call, calling upon Christ in a particular situation. It's through our union with Christ that we are united to him by faith, to the one who, who died and has been raised again. 
And with him, we receive that newness of life. But it also means that Christ is in us. Paul said, it's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And what did the Apostle uh, Apostle John say? He said that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so the spirit of Christ dwells in believers and empowers us to be victorious, to be content even in the midst of trials. We're also encouraged to persevere in trials through Christ's own example. He is the one who perfectly obeyed the will of his father, including drinking the cup of his wrath. He is the one who prayed for those who humiliated him, who beat him, and who put him on a cross. He is the one who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we are united to this one who defeated sin, who conquered death, who is the sovereign Lord over all of creation. You see, through Christ's example, we are encouraged to abide in him and to receive the strength that he supplies. You see, but, it, but our strength comes when we are united with him and remain united with him and connected with him daily. You see, Paul's contentment came through Christ's ongoing work of empowerment. You see, it wasn't just a one-time strengthening, but it was a continual strengthening. Christ is continually strengthening us. And so Paul had to continually rely on Christ, and we need to continue to rely on him as well. Through communing with God in prayer, reading his word, fellowship with others, we draw strength through Christ's continual giving of us through his union with us, giving us the victory, giving us the strength, the ability to be content. And so, here's how I would paraphrase this verse. Paul's saying is, I can have the victory, which in this context means I can be content in any circumstance or situation through my union with Christ who continually strengthens me. Well, what's the message of contentment then? Let me give you four reasons why I think it's important for us to understand the text this way. The first is that this message is all-encompassing. You see, when when it's understood this way, it becomes very powerful and significant and actually more relevant and meaningful in our lives. It's not just about the, the great accomplishments that we attempt, I can do all things, We claim this verse in those particular situations when we really need to step out in faith. In my opinion, that's far too narrow of an understanding. It would apply to only a few circumstances when we really decide to step out in faith. But rather, this verse applies to us here and now. All of us are in situations that are difficult, that are faith testing and that are overwhelming and if we're not we will be at some point perhaps you or your family member are struggling with health issues 
physical limitations, surgeries, cancer, depression, aging parents. Maybe there's difficulties at work or maybe you're having difficulty finding a job. Or having trouble with a child who's rebelling or maybe you're a single parent having to provide and you have all these responsibilities. Maybe there's relationship issues, tension with the spouse, a separation, a divorce in the family or financial issues due to medical bills or children's education, whatever it might be. You see, it's in those situations that this verse is meant to speak to us. It's not about what we do, it's about what what happens to us and what situation we find ourselves. And what Paul's saying is no matter where we find ourselves, we can have the victory through Christ's strength. But this message understood this way is humbling, isn't it? It reminds us that we are not in control. I, I think we like the idea that we are in control, that when we claim this verse, we can do something. When we decide, what we decide, if we decide. But this verse reminds us that God is the one in control. Sometimes we're passive and things just happen to us. Paul was preaching the gospel and he found himself in prison. It's humbling to recognize that things will happen to us that we cannot control. But we also see that this message involves learning. Paul states that he learned it. You know, kids, you're in school, you're learning things. Hopefully you're in school or kind of in school. You know, you remember that thing called school? You with me? All right. I can tell you kids, I was in school for a very long time. Matter of fact, they never let me out. I'm still there. Okay, I'm, still, I'm still learning. But learning takes a while, doesn't it? Learning to read is hard. It takes time. It, it, it's, it's a process. And Paul says he learned the secret of contentment. He learned it. It wasn't instantaneous. He didn't become a Christian and all of a sudden contentment was given to him. He had to learn it. It was something he struggled with, he struggled with, he struggled with, and then finally he was able to prevail. Remember at this point, Paul had been a Christian for nearly 30 years. Spurgeon says that he was an old gray-headed man upon the borders of the grave, a poor prisoner shut up in Nero's dungeon in Rome. You see, Paul had trial after trial. You read the book of Acts, he's, he's going from one trial to another in various cities. You read, you read Acts, he's in Damascus and Jerusalem, Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Macedonia, Jerusalem, Caesarea. He's shipwrecked in the open sea. And then he's in Rome for two years, a prisoner of Nero. You see, contentment is not something that comes automatically. You're not born with it, and you're not born again with it. It's something that we have to learn, which means that we will go through trials. We will go through difficulties. But this message is also Christ-exalting. Christ is the one who strengthens us. He's the one who does it. Paul says it over and over again, Philippians, or, uh, 1 Timothy 1.12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. 
Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. He tells Timothy, while, when he, or he references this, this verse before uh, he references Timothy, that's the next one. But he says in, in 2 Timothy, when he's imprisoned again, after he's released, when he writes Philip, the uh, book, letter to the Philippians, he's released, he's in prison again, and he says in 2, uh, 2 Timothy 4.12 that the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. He tells Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he writes to the Ephesians, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength in his might. Christ is the one who strengthens us. And because he strengthens us, he receives the glory. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter 4, 11. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He supplies the strength. He receives the glory. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 that he worked harder than all, the, all his contemporaries. But notice three times he talks about the grace of God. He says, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. And God is more glorified when we are content in trials than when we are content with blessings. Let me say that one more time. God is more glorified when we're content in life and we have hardship than when we are content with blessings. Let me read a couple quotes from John Piper who I think captures this well. He says, loss and suffering joyfully accepted for the kingdom of God show the supremacy of God's worth more clearly in all the world than all worship and prayer. Gratitude for gifts does not prove that the giver is precious. No matter how grateful we are, gold will not make the world think that our God is good. It will make people think that our God is gold. What proves that the giver is precious is the glad-hearted readiness to leave all his, his gifts to be with him. The supremacy of that glory shines most brightly when the satisfaction that we have in him endures in spite of pain and suffering. And so let me, let me close by giving you three examples in my life where the Lord has been teaching me this, this journey of contentment. Uh, the first was when my son Cameron was born. And I'm sure all of you, or probably most of you know him more than you know me. Um, 17 years ago, Cameron was born, and he was born with Down syndrome. By the way, today is World Down Syndrome Day, 321. Um, but we didn't, we didn't know, we didn't know this. And we, we rushed to the hospital, we lived in Malaysia at the time, and got there barely in time. And when he's born, instead of going through the normal procedures that they do, this was our fourth child. We knew, we knew how this, the day would unfold, but it didn't unfold like we thought it would. They rush him out of the room. A couple hours later, I'm told to go to the nursery. And at the nursery, I meet a nurse 
who tells me that my son, my son has Down syndrome. My knees almost buckled. We're told that he has a heart defect. And the burden, really the burden of his life, I felt it at once. His, his health issues, therapy, the financial cost, that burden was overwhelming to me. That's when Philippians 4.13 is important. About eight years ago, another example, Marion, my wife, we found out that she had stage three breast cancer you know, she was, she was feeling pain. She knew, she knew something was wrong, and so she had scans and a biopsy and still remember being in the doctor's office when the doctor came in to give us the news that, yes, in fact, you have cancer. And this is true. Uh, I became pale and very weak, and I, I could tell you I'm glad my wife was there to comfort me at that point. Uh, yes, she's the one with the cancer, but, uh, but I was the one who, who needed to be comforted. And then she was told that she would need to ha- go undergo surgery, six months of chemotherapy, another surgery, seven weeks of daily radiation, and, and then physical therapy. That's when Philippians 4.13 matters. Not before a football game, but when you're in the doctor's office and the news you get isn't what you expected. And the final example I offer is the loss of my son. Loss of my son, Brandon, September of 2016. By far the hardest day of my life. But I can tell you this, Philippians 4.13 became more meaningful that day. The pain is still great, but I can say, and I can testify that God, is, his grace is greater still. Overcoming difficulties and being content with where we are, with where we find ourselves, is not impossible. The secret is to find our strength in Christ. Paul was depressed, discouraged. He could have been depressed and discouraged as he finds himself in prison, and yet he talks about how he rejoices in the Lord. We too can have contentment. It does not have to do with where we are or what we do, but it's who we are in the midst of our trials. You see, true victory means being content with where God puts us. Sometimes we have it good and things are going well, and sometimes we go through trials. 
regardless of our circumstances, we can have the victory. We can be content through the strength we receive from Christ. But of course, if you are not a believer in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ to save you, this strength is not yours. You don't have the power of the crucified one who, who defeated death and rose again and who is now reigning over creation. You don't have that. You don't have that strength. And so it is going to be overwhelming to you. And so I would urge you to look to Christ, to trust in him. In 1860, Charles Spurgeon preached from Philippians 4, and he closed his sermon with these words, and I close with them as well. He said, before I dismiss you, there's this one other sentence. You that love not Christ, recollect that you are the most miserable people in the world. Though you may think yourselves happy, there is not one of us that would change places with the best of you. When we are very sick, very poor, on the, vorge, on the borders of the grave, if you were to step in and say, come, I will change places with you. You shall have my gold, my silver, my riches, my health. There is not one living Christian that would change places with you. We would not stop to deliberate. We would give you the answer at once. No, go your way and delight in what you have, but all your treasures are transient. They will soon pass away. We will keep our sufferings and you shall keep your gaudy toys. Saints have no hell but what they suffer here on earth. But sinners have no heaven but what they have here in this poor, troublesome world. We have our sufferings here and our glory afterwards. You have your glory here, but you will have your sufferings forever and ever. God grant you new hearts right spirits, and a living faith, and a living Jesus. Amen.